Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. Uh, best place to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at @focuscompound. Uh, if you're watching the screen right now, focuscompound.com is a place to get access to investment write-ups on different stocks and investing topics going all the way back to 2005 by Jeff. Uh, you could see right now that the last blog post he had uploaded was on May 1st, how acquisitions add value or don't. Um, and we have a few different stock write-ups as well. Uh, so if you want to get access to that for free, go to your browser, type in focuscompound.com, and you'll see it right there on your webpage. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, yes, we do run a hedge fund. Yes, we do run a managed accounts firm. Uh, you can reach out to me at andrewredfocuscompounding.com. Uh, all of that information is on that invest with us tab at our website, focuscompounding.com for the third or fourth time that I've mentioned it in the past few minutes. So Jeff, uh, we could talk a little bit about the past blog post, most recent blog post you uploaded May 1st, 2023, how acquisitions add value or don't. Uh, Take us through this blog post. So somebody had sent you an email. How do you think management should analyze acquisition opportunities? Um, and then you had uh, sent in a response. So do you actually email these people back or do you just tell them that you're going to make a blog post out of it? No, it's always email back to them. Usually the blog post is some um, fraction of the email. So sometimes some things I remove from the email. Um, but a lot of times it's close to 100% of what you see in the blog post is what I email them back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you said the best acquisitions are often horizontal mergers where the mm -hmm. company, for example, one rolling up smaller businesses in its same industry, acquires companies that have similar distribution channels, customers, suppliers, etc., and may increase market power this way. There are often cost synergies, especially economies of scale, and sharing fixed costs across acquired businesses in this sort of merger. So a merger might be done at a high price relative to the acquired company's previous EBITDA, earnings, etc., but at a reasonable price after these synergies are achieved. So that's always a pitch, right? Cost synergies, uh, further market power, stuff like that. Interestingly, um, the individual that we're going to speak about today and the company we're going to speak about today, Warren Buffett, uh, his acquisitions are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, so just what are your general thoughts on businesses that are rolling up industries, uh, investment companies in general, or holding companies in general, that are looking to buy part of, or huge stakes or all of, uh, the business itself. What are your thoughts on that as a business model? I don't usually like them. Um, they get recognized pretty quickly by the market and it's, uh, usually a limited amount that they can do of acquiring stuff before it doesn't work out. So um, there may be particular niches that people, um, there, there's not competition for acquisitions and stuff, but um, you know, like, you know, funeral homes were rolled up, right? And so there was a time where you could do that, where you paid very low multiples. 
and you are awarded a much higher multiple in the market and then that goes away. So the ones that are really successful are things like Teledyne and Berkshire and they know how to pivot so that they make certain kinds of acquisitions when those make sense and then at other times they have to do completely different things. So, you know, Teledyne issued a lot of stock to acquire a lot of tech companies early on and then when its stock was cheap it bought back its stock. Berkshire used to have a huge investment portfolio and not buy entire businesses. Then when stocks got expensive, it stopped, you know, putting a lot into investments and put a lot more into buying businesses. So most companies don't do that. Whatever they do, they'll keep doing, you know, endlessly. And so at some point they'll run into problems of scale. Uh, you'll need bigger acquisitions to move the needle. You have to pay higher amounts, all that. So a lot of it works out in the beginning and then doesn't work out as well later. And usually by the time you've discovered the idea and heard a lot of people talk about the compound record and everything, a lot of that's already happened. So ideally you have someone who understands capital allocation, is pretty flexible, can pivot, but that's not usually how these companies work. So Buffett and Munger bring up Teledyne pretty often, I would say. Mm -hmm. My view is that the general public does not. Why do you think that is? Um, well... One, it's not any sort of name that they know, but Berkshire Hathaway wouldn't be a name they know other than Warren Buffett, you know. Um, so the company was basically one person. Um, it only lasted in a successful form for about 25 years before it was broken up. Um, also, buybacks at that time were not popular. Uh, in fact, it was criticized. Though there was a defense written by some investor. I can't remember if it was Cooperman or someone like that. Um, of that. But it was criticized specifically for doing the buybacks that they don't have anything else to do to do that. Um, took passive positions in other stocks, which is always confusing to people, just like Berkshire's position in Occidental. Very large, right? But we're not going to acquire the whole company. He did that, and no one, Henry Singleton, and no one believed him. But that's what he did, and he, he held on to those stocks. Um, so I just think they're not... You know, that that was an era when that wasn't a focus. Um, there is the mm -hmm. book, The Outsiders, that talks about it, some others later. But the focus wasn't generally who has the best compound record. Um, Buffett had been a money manager, you know, so he came from a different situation and attracted different people who, um, you know, sort of looked at Berkshire through that lens, right? But Teledyne, the idea of, acquiring all the stuff, then not acquiring more, buying stuff back, slowing growth, breaking it up. Um, you know, for people in technology things, um, that may not be the, the kind of model that they look to. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, today is May 11th, uh, 2023. We um, flew to Omaha. Uh, this time last week, we were in Omaha for the uh, Berkshire Hathaway meeting. Uh, met up with a bunch of investors, a few uh, prospective investors, um, and spent some time with people. Went to the Willow Oak event, and I wanted to dedicate this podcast uh, to just our overall general thoughts on the meeting. So did you have a good time in Omaha, Jeff? Yes, it was much better this time than last time, much easier. Um, we had done this before, so many of the things we already knew what was going to happen. I thought the Willow Oak event was improved from the year before, ran very smoothly. Mm -hmm. We had to leave immediately. Um, so I don't uh, know what that means because I moderated the previous year. 
Oh. Everyone's saying well, that this year was so much better. So, so much what, better. what's that all about? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought that that was good. For people who don't know, Willow Oak is uh, our partner in the administrative and marketing aspects of the the investment arm of our business. They don't have anything to do with investing. Um, and they do that for other funds too. And those were other fund managers were there at the event. And so they, they put on that event, you know, so it's sort of like one of these, you know, when you hear whatever manager in conversation with whoever, you know, it was that kind of event, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think the format was better this year. I mean, quite frankly, I would have much rather moder- moderated this year than last year because, well, this year it was, I think each person had like, or moderators had like 45 minutes up there. So they broke it up more uh, for mm-hmm. those that weren't allowed to, or did, did not make it to uh, the meeting. Uh, they had a few different sessions. There was one with Jeff and uh, Shri and Jacob McDonough, the author of Capital Allocation. And then it was uh, individual, an individual from In Practice up there with, uh, with Keith and Stephen Keel. And then I, at the end, came up there with all of the managers and just basically opened up the room to questions. So I thought that was a much better format. Um, there was a lot less downtime this year, I would say. Last year, there was like an hour of mingling, I guess, before the event started. And then yes. it was, I don't know, two hours of the actual event. And then it basically closed. This year, it was doors opened up at 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Uh Things started, the presentation started at 525 and then it was just like 45 minute increments of different things. So I think the overall format of it made for a much better, um, uh, I guess, conference or meeting, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it was great. I think people really enjoyed it. A lot of people have basically said the same thing just to kept the this uh, pace was much better this year, I would say. So it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Went by a lot quicker than it did last year i think just because they had these two or a few different micro sessions so i think it was uh, a great format and it is awesome to meet a lot of people as well yeah and the moderator that we we're talking about the interviewer for um one of the sessions which i was part of um it was jacob mcdonough who wrote cap allocation that book was on sale there in berkshire apparently he did quite well selling it we also saw it at the airport selling nicely so mm-hmm. Um, that is a book that I would recommend to anyone who hasn't read it yet. If you've been a long-time listener to the podcast, you've probably heard us cover uh, Berkshire history a little bit, and we talked about that with that book. Um, so that's one we've talked about in the past. Um, but that was a very good choice, right? As a moderator, very good choice of someone who knew a lot about value investing, about Berkshire, a great choice for someone to have do that. A lot of times you have more general, um, less interesting interviewers for any event that you do. And this one was someone who really knew the stuff and knew that niche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like I said, got to meet a lot of people that listen to the podcast, uh, always surprised by how many people listen that are outside the United States. Uh, pretty cool. Um, just from the perspective of the reach that the podcast has. So, uh, that aspect was awesome. Uh, what did you think about the annual, uh, the AGM, the actual Berkshire meeting itself? Um, I thought it was good. Uh, it was better paced and, and answering a lot more questions and everything than the last few years since COVID where Buffett hosted sure. alone and everything. It's been off. Uh, they've been off their game that way. Um, so it was helpful that way. Not a lot of rambling and all that. Um, there is a lot of, 
ESG, uh, political, um, more general, whatever sorts of things. And that's been true for a long time. Um, there's some interesting stories they tell and all that, but uh, mostly it's in spite, uh, despite the questions, not really because of the questions being all that good usually. So there were a few things I thought were really interesting that they said, but um, it was prompted sometimes by questions, but almost they did that on their own. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. A lot more kids asking questions than I remember. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. more questions on estate planning, uh, philanthropy, uh, ESG, as you had said. Um, kind of gone are the days, it seems like, if you go back on the Buffett archive and listen to like the 90s of actually talking about like, you know, a ton of business stuff and return on invested capital and how they think about things and stuff like that. Right. I mean, they brought out, Buffett had um, little uh, signs that, you know, to flip around that would say uh, available for sale and held to maturity, right? So he's prepared for that. That was a nice stunt for that. Um, but to give an idea on that about the banking thing, I would guess if we went through a transcript, there was more talk about climate change than about the banking crisis. When, well, they didn't bring it out to the second half. So he well, had that sitting there the mm-hmm. whole time, probably expecting people to ask about it. Right. And now, you know that was going to be his prop, but nobody mm-hmm. asked about it. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Now, Berkshire is a giant um, energy company, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, big in renewables, um, regulated, but, but big in that stuff in the United States. And Berkshire does own um, Chevron and Occidental in, in big amounts. But it also, Bank of America is one of its very biggest positions, you know, excluding something like Apple or something. It's a huge position. And um, Buffett's been a long time investor in banks. The, the, the company owned a bank and disposed of it just because of the... Um, uh, bank holding company stuff where they want to be allowed to own both insurance and banking. And he talked a little bit about that, which was interesting because that relates to Jacob's book, you know, um, capital allocation, that history of Berkshire is like one thing he explores. There's what if, Ber- what if Buffett had a different vehicle, right? What if like Buffett had been able to take over American express or been able to use flow from some other source or whatever, instead of building on this textile mill. And you can see how flexible Buffett was in that. He said, yeah, I mean, we might have done both insurance and banking. At the time, we were more likely to do more banking than insurance. It looked like a better business. It was definitely a better business for a little while there. Um, Because although Berkshire did well with insurance in terms of investing that float, and there were great investment opportunities, uh, their their operating results in insurance were mixed outside of their um, some initial invest uh, acquisition. Any expansion they tried to do was not good for a long time in that. So... It's interesting because you think of him as having this like grand scheme of the whole insurance thing and stuff. And they would have, you know, they bought National Indemnity and they bought the Rockford Bank. And, uh, you know, he's like, we would have done, we could have done both or we could have been much bigger in banking than ever we would have been in insurance. So it definitely would have been nice to hear a lot of questions asked about him about banking. And he seemed very eager to volunteer his ideas. He was very critical Mm -hmm. of the uh, media coverage and the government response. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah. He said the messaging has been very poor. It's been poor by politicians. It's been poor by the agencies and it's been poor by the press. And he reiterated that, uh, as you did actually when everything was happening, that, uh, there are no risk to any deposits in the United States. And, uh, Buffett had, uh, brought that up. Now he did, uh, give praise to the FDIC, for stepping mm-hmm. in when they did for uh, Silicon Valley Bank, basically saying that 
it would have been catastrophic if they did not. Um, but yeah, he criticized uh, just like, I guess, the uh, the narrative around it and the lack of uh, communication to everyday people, basically, on what's going on in banking, basically saying that all of the deposits are safe and you don't need mm -hmm. to worry from that aspect. Uh, right, I think Munger said uninsured, bad yeah. bankers. Yeah, the uninsured. And uh, I think Munger said that bad bankers should be punished or maybe that was Buffett, but, uh, you know, kind of something that they have probably always uh, thought. I mean, Munger was basically saying he liked the banking business a lot more when there wasn't uh, an investment banking division and then mm -hmm. all the greed and everything that basically comes with that. Yeah. And Buffett was also critical saying, you know, especially politicians, I think, but also maybe media, he meant it for too, that, you know, some of them don't know what they're talking about. And so that's why they do a bad job of communicating, but others know better and for their own purposes are not clear about it. Right. So they're okay mm -hmm. with letting people be scared if it helps them in terms of uh, winning points politically, or maybe their ideas for reform or whatever, or, or benefit from that or their side from whatever making it look like other people are to blame for stuff you know it's kind of they benefit from there being some crisis right instead of saying everything's mm -hmm. fine don't worry about it yeah um yeah and like you said about munger uh the berkshire has been in pretty big banks and stuff for a while now you know later on in the years and so it's much more exposed to those kinds of things obviously it was a big investor in Solomon, um, though really just wanted the preferred and didn't want to be involved in that business. But Munger ended up having to be on that board and everything. Bank of America is big in that stuff because that's the only thing they can do in size. You know, they've sold most of their mm -hmm. other bank stuff anyway. But uh, it's a long, long time since they've been in much more traditional forms of banking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, we don't know where the shareholders of big banks or the regional banks or any bank are heading, uh, but he's not bailing on Bank of America. And we've seen that in their uh, 13Fs that, that was, he, he still owns Bank of America in size. He said something very, very interesting about that one. He made a point of saying that he had solicited them and not the other way around, which sounds like if it had been a stock they bought in the public markets, they would have sold it. And maybe even if Bank of America said, here, we need your help, um, they would have sold it now. But... Because he said, I would like to do this, and they did it, uh, it doesn't feel like he can, you know, um, sell out on them, you know, that he's stuck in it. Um, Bank of America has some of the issues that were shown on that, those uh, little signs, right, the hell to maturity thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's too big to fail, Bank, but as Buffett said, he's not really concerned about the deposits at, at banks. Um so, you know, I, I think it's probably not the case that he's kept Bank of America and not the other banks because he likes Bank of America a lot more. Um, I don't know that there's like dramatically different stuff with Bank of America versus um, U.S. Bank or something, which I believe he sold. Um, what do you think about his comments uh, politically? So he did bring up politicians and he hit on uh, politics a little bit today where he's basically saying, Today, it's all about like tribalism. Like, there's, it seems like there's no like middle ground or being able to like debate on things or diplomacy. He's like, it's just one way basically thinks one way and the other way basically thinks the other way. And it doesn't seem like people want to um, be diplomatic and, and uh, try to work out issues. He just kind of sounded like he was basically saying politics today makes people's brain turn to cabbage, which I was kind of surprised to hear him talk about politics a little bit. 
I think he tries not to talk about politics with Berkshire since about whatever it was 10 years ago or something when, you know, they talked about the Buffett tax and, um, you know, Buffett rule for taxes and things. And, um, you know, he had some general points. He's done it a few times, but uh, in his career, um, he's been involved with some political things with nuclear, uh, you know, working with specific people to try to reduce risk of nuclear war. Um, he certainly worked on things, writing up stuff about the trade deficit and about, um, just also just fiscal deficit. And then he, um, had been involved with income inequality stuff specifically with the idea of like, um, people who make a lot of money, not having especially low taxes, right? Because it's all from Mm -hmm. investment things and stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, you know, that became very associated positively with by one side and not so much by the other and stuff. And so I think it made him like he was saying with the tribalism much more a favorite of one group and not of the other when, um, I don't even know that many of his positions would be particularly well liked by the party on the other things. It's just that because he was in favor of that talking about, you know, how he pays a lower tax rate than a secretary and all that stuff that became such a talking point that I think that was uh, that from that point on, I think it was a little scary for him in terms of how associated that was with Berkshire, how it could hurt Berkshire in ways and stuff. And so I think he's tried to as best he can not talk about politics. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though he's always been involved in politics. I mean, his dad was a congressman and even though he was Mm -hmm. uh, switched parties, uh, Buffett, not his dad. um, He's been continuously involved behind the scenes and stuff and supporting certain people that he likes and whatever. But, uh, public statements that could be like make headlines and be associated with Berkshire. He's definitely toned those down in the last decade, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we were talking about it. Um, he talked about Occidental um, uh, at the uh, meeting. Something that I thought was interesting was he basically, um, he confirmed that they won't be making an offer for Occidental, uh, which I was kind of surprised to hear him talk publicly about something that they're probably buying. Maybe they're not buying it now, but he did say we will not be making an offer for Occidental, but we love the shares we have. We may or may not own more in the future, but we certainly have warrants on a very substantial amount of stock at around $59 a share. Those warrants last a long time, and I'm glad we have them. So... I think it's possible that they've decided they will not outright own an oil company. And that's what that statement really means. I think there's some things Berkshire will not own. Uh, Probably for... I mean... Like, the airlines are a good example, right? So they were large owners but not controlling in any airline. If they'd owned one airline, it would have been okay because then Berkshire could have handled that and they wouldn't have needed a bailout and everything. But Berkshire can't bail out all of the airlines, and yet, as Buffett said, they're not going to give a bailout. It's not going to look good for the government to bail out airlines where the largest shareholder is um, Berkshire Hathaway. So I think there's some stuff that they might avoid, and I would guess they don't want to control an oil company probably. But we'll see. Um, there's just some stuff that I think they will not do. And I think that's probably one of them. And, um, cause you know, they have an insurance business. They're pretty big. They have some politically sensitive things, you know, the energy company and the railroad. I think insurance needing the great credit rating for that and being in that. And then, you know, two things that are federally, uh, 
subject to a lot of regulation and stuff with um, energy and uh, and the railroad. I think they, they may not want to own an oil company outright. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, he had said that in the last few months, uh, Occidental had uh, reduced their preferred. Uh, he said, which we don't like, but we'd be disappointed in them if they didn't reduce it. It's intelligent from their standpoint of the 10 billion preferred. We've got maybe 400 to 500 million retired at 110% of par. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with preferred stock. Uh, it's usually able to be retired, called at um, rates that, at percentage premiums that are not very large, and even just not even having to be a big improvement in the company's results, but just a change in interest rates may make it so you don't benefit a lot from it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's very often a problem as opposed to like common stock. There's a lot less upside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think people would you be interested all his preferred stock investments for that reason you know like um, mm-hmm. there's much more upside in the common stock if the if the business is desirable do you think Occidental is desirable at these levels I have it pulled up on the screen on quick FS uh, EB to sales 1.9 times 10-year median margins on EBIT 16.1 um, EB to free cash flow 5.6 um, Buffett talked about this. We, we own a little energy and we've never owned energy, like oil and gas and stuff. And we've never owned that before. also we own some coal. Um, so very ESG, Jeff, very ESG. Yeah. Um, and also like the dirtiest coal and the, um, the Done some things uh, in tight, tightest oil and yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> they talked a little about this in an interesting way. Um, and I had mentioned that I'd read a book, The Prize, right? I read some other books too, but The Prize is the one that I thought was the best for people to read about the history of oil, just in a very general sense, and something that people might be interested in if they just like history and things like that, that it gives you enough about oil um, to sort of understand it from an economic perspective and all of that, and to understand um, without having to get into any predictions really about the future in that book um, or about needing to know the geopolitics of today or whatever. It's quite a long book and it's very good. And uh, I would recommend that to people. Um, The, the, the thing that they said, which is very interesting is that the, the time structure of the assets, the, the life of the assets has changed a lot especially margin, the marginal assets, which are the important ones for determining the price and everything, right? Um, it doesn't much matter if, you know, 40% of oil is um, long-lived stuff in the Middle East or whatever. It, it would have little effect on the price because oil demand isn't going to drop by 60%. So the stuff that's going to come in and out of the market is going to be the, the more marginal stuff. And that is mu- has a much, much shorter life than it used to. Um, and I think that's significant to think about what that means for oil prices, what it means for um, decisions by these companies. So um, on the one hand... Why does it, it have do- a shorter life than it used to? The wells don't last as long. So you drill a mm-hmm. well um, and you're going to have a very steep decline in the in yeah. the production. Yeah, very steep. So, I think they, they talked that about that. Thing. Yeah, they talked about that. And so for instance, where I was saying um, that we own some... 
uh, oil and gas and all that. It's stuff that's very, very steep decline, super steep. Um, so it, it has a very, very short life, which has pluses and minuses. On the minus side, uh, it, it really caps how much you can make by being aggressive in the business in picking the right spot to um, in time, the right spot in time and price to um, make an investment that's going to pay off for a very long period of time, just like in a stock that way. So there's a, you know, buying a junk bond might be great, but it's never going to replace buying Activision or something. And that's because Activision has, you know, well, now it's trying to sell itself, but had, you know, 25 years ago, infinite uh, duration, basically, as perpetual and had a lot of upside. Now, if you get something where you have, as they were talking about with Charlie, you know, you have royalties on something where you have it at some very cheap price, um, that's fine, but it, it it's not going to produce anything six years from now. So it's not something that's going to be producing 60 years from now. And so that's very different. Um, it also means that if you don't, um, if you don't spend on CapEx, then pretty quickly you'll reduce the supply that you have. And so that adjustment can be made faster. So that's very important. Um, and that leads to a more rational industry, usually when that happens. The least rational industries, the ones that have the most boom and bust issues, are ones that have assets with very long lives. The shorter the life of the asset, the, the easier it is to manage the business. Um, so I think that's interesting. Uh, there, there are downsides to it, though. Like, for instance, you won't benefit as much from inflation. Um, it's not as good an inflation hedge if it's shorter term like that, since owning a real asset longer term um, without having to put more money in is much, much better, right? So holding a royalty on uh, on a well that's going to produce for half a century is a great hedge against inflation. Um, having something where you have to work and interest um, uh, and putting a lot of CapEx and stuff into it um, in, in future dollars in those years where you'll have to do this, you know, is going to be a problem, right? You have to refract something, whatever you're spending in those 2026 $20, dollars if you're doing it if you drilled in 2023 or whatever you're going to have to work on it again in a few years spend in those dollars which at the rate of inflation today that could be you know 10 15 percent more expensive than today's dollars are in those so obviously it would be better if you had mineral rights or royalties or whatever that you um that had production that would last for a long time but that's not the certainly in the united states the new stuff that is coming online is nothing like that Right. So that's a big change from some of the past. Yeah. He had said that his $1,000, um, he paid $1,000 for a royalty that paid him like, pays him $70,000 a year still. And he bought it in like 1959 or something like that. Yeah. Read the, read the prize. Um, so you'll see the different places where they find oil and how it's different in each case, you know? So, you know, you have Pennsylvania. This is just the U.S. ones. There's also ones over in like, you know, um, what would it be? Modern day. Hmm. I don't know. It would it be Azerbaijan? You know, that area of um, the, the what was the Soviet Union and stuff. There's things there where they find oil. Um, but like uh, where they find it in Texas, of course, was a big deal in the United States. And there's talk about that because the prize discusses how that was kind of the precursor to OPEC was the United States attempts to control um, oil prices because of how cheap it was getting because of a huge find in Texas. Um, and so te the state of Texas had a um, system in place, which basically is the model for like what OPEC 
is um, the idea that you could have a cartel and that you could do that. Um, but of course, at the time, that Texas oil and then later OPEC, when it was doing this, um, was much more important to the market than than it is now. Those you know those things aren't as important. They're, they're, there's a lot of supply they can't control. So, do you think he'll continue to buy Occidental stock then? I mean, I remember seeing his 13Fs. Uh, every time it would come through, it was just continue to climb, and people were speculating, "Oh, is he going to take control of this company? Is it you know what's he doing?" Um, so he basically uh, spiked all of those uh, questions. So, do you expect him to continue to buy Occidental? I don't know. Um, he's kind of limited. I mean, he owns already a huge amount. He doesn't want to take control. The, the problem is he bought PetroChina one time, but it's really, really, really hard to invest in oil as a um, individual like Buffett or like me or whatever, looking at investing in things. Even if you like oil, you have pretty serious problems in terms of uh, where is it? Who controls mm-hmm. it? What's their CapEx going to be? And so you don't have a way to do what they'd like to do, which is to buy reserves and then uh, to hold them if he's worried about things like inflation or he thinks that the, the, the price is reasonable versus what he's likely to see in the future. So you'll remember he bought silver on that basis at one time, had to buy up like, you know, a fifth of the world's supply of silver or something. And getting in and getting out moves the price. And, you know, so like just to do it in scale. So I'm sure if he liked Exxon, he would buy a lot of Exxon. If he liked you know, whatever else you buy a lot of that. He probably doesn't like Chevron as much as he likes Occidental, but he can get more Chevron. And we've had that experience when, you know, we invest in things that are not very liquid for us. These are things that aren't very liquid for him. He has to buy such huge parts of the company that even if you don't like Chevron as much as you like Occidental, which I'm pretty sure he doesn't, um, he can get a lot of it. So he can put a lot of money to work. You know, if he's he wants to be in the United States, if he wants to be with with management that's doing certain things, um, your options are limited, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're really limited. And so there are some, and then they trade at different prices and stuff versus reserves. They're likely value of the reserves, right? So he's willing obviously to buy certain kinds of things. They asked questions about the Permian and stuff in the, mm-hmm. um, annual meeting and he's fine with that, but I don't think he's fine with any sort of capital allocation that it doesn't matter. I don't think, um, so it depends on the balance sheet of the company and what their capital allocation is going to go to. Like there's a bunch of companies that oil companies that are pretty cheap in the United States, much smaller. We're talking about, uh, what's the market cap on Occidental? Uh, 51 billion. Okay. So let's say 10 to 20 times smaller, more like 20 times smaller, probably. Um, and, uh, they're in places that I could understand and whatever, but see they 10 years ago or whatever, they may have had a lot of debt. And they didn't, and they didn't go bankrupt, or they didn't get rid of all their debt in bankruptcy, or whatever. So uh, they're going to basically delever, which is terrible, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, they're taking a real resource out of the ground. Sometimes it's their choice because they're the operating stuff. Sometimes it's not really. But regardless, they're taking out a resource which is likely to be worth more money in, in nominal dollars in the future, and they're using it to pay off debt at at basically face value of the debt, which is way inflated over the value of what the debt should be today right so they're paying like almost probably two dollars to retire debt that in the market you know in terms of opportunity costs and stuff might be worth a dollar or something um and they're doing it by taking out a a finite resource out of the ground to do that it's just terrible you know so like to to sell Mm -hmm. oil to pay off long-term debt at five percent or something is insane but they want to do it so um because you know all these companies had near-death experiences 10 years ago 
So they've all, mm-hmm. you know, found religion on that stuff and so are making capital allocation decisions that aren't that great. Um, so it really depends on what your history was. Like if you're able to buy back stock and everything, and those all say, oh, we'll buy back stock once we get our debt down to a certain level, but they're they're not doing what they should, which is to leave the debt and buy back the stock. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a big issue. And when they're done paying off the debt, the price might be really high versus the reserves, and then you don't want them to buy back the, the stock, you know? You want them to buy back the mm-hmm. stock when it, it's cheaper than going out and, and um, acquiring or, or developing. Um, you know, additional reserves, you know, to buy back your reserves per share are better. Um, so I think that he's just limited with that, right? So he's not going to buy these companies that are all over the world in different places where he doesn't understand them and where he doesn't understand the cap allocation. So I think he is heavy buying in a couple companies. Probably he likes those companies a lot. And Berkshire has so much capital to deploy that that's why he can't spread it out across the whole industry. He was very clear that it's mainly tied to the price of oil. The future price of oil is what determines your returns in these investments. And that's what this is a bet on. It is a bet on the future price of oil, but he doesn't want something to come along and screw up the, the that bet. And there's too many companies where there's something that could screw it up in terms of cap allocation. Um, you know, so, I mean, you don't know that some giant oil company won't do a transformative acquisition of some, you know, much more ESG-friendly new um, energy thing or whatever. You, you just don't know. And uh, there's probably some weird risks for that around the world in the biggest energy companies. I mean, do you think he's thinking about this from an ownership perspective to hold over the next like 10, 15, 20, 30 years? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I think he would love to own oil in the United States if the company promised not to... um, engage in any uh, additional capital allocation towards it. Um, that is, if they used what they have and turned it into cash and paid it out. Yeah. So uh, if it was very economical to increase production in some ways on some of the properties, the acreage that they already have and everything, um, maybe if they could combine it with some things really close by and stuff, even that wouldn't bother him. But doing anything outside of the areas that they're already in um, and not running it like a trust that's going to pay out to you and stuff is the issue, you know, um, it's not a bad business, but it has very serious issues in terms of capital allocation. And, um, often the stocks don't turn out to be that good compared to what they should be given what the properties were at the time you bought it and the price you got. So, and yeah, I think he'd like to be in oil, not natural gas. And I think he'd like to be in the United States, not anywhere else. So that limits your choices especially when you're such a huge company that you need to buy like tens of billions of dollars. So he uh, talked a little bit about uh, U.S. and China tensions, um, his selling of Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, He praised them, right? Said that management's done a great job there. And uh, he talked pretty highly about the company, but he did sell the business. And my takeaway from that was he just um, is very uncomfortable with the the tension uh, between you know China, Taiwan, and the United States. He said, "I feel better about capital we've got deployed in Japan than Taiwan. Right. I wish it weren't so, but that's the reality." Um, and then Munger said, "Everything that increases tension between the U.S. and China is stupid, stupid, stupid." And then he uh, said that uh, they should both respond to the other stupidity with reciprocal kindness the other side stupidity mm-hmm. with reciprocal kindness so he kind of 
made a joke about that. But uh, my biggest takeaway, he praised semi, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, talked about how good management is, uh, but he did sell the stock. So he's just very uncomfortable with everything that's going on geopolitically. Taiwan Semiconductor is a zero if um, you can't get uh, out of Taiwan, right? So in the event of an invasion of Taiwan um, by the People's Republic of China, um, a, an American investor would not be able to get money out. We don't know that there'd be any value to Taiwan Semiconductor stock at all. Um, obviously, there's risk that there's no value to anything in China if you're on the wrong side of China in a conflict. Um, but certainly, Taiwan is specifically in Taiwan. Uh, that that's the would be the site of that, and um, they would have problems because of that. So, um, and it's not an unrealistic worry um there's many companies that have become zeros for investors in other countries because of of war um and you know it, it's it, it's uh doesn't have any diversification away from that risk so um you know when russia invaded ukraine the even companies that people said oh they're very exposed to russia and everything it's two percent of their business or something you know that they would lo lose that would be a zero here we're talking about something that it's a hundred percent of your business, you know? So, um, yeah. And so it doesn't have to be in a particularly high risk, but it changes the calculation completely. And we've talked about that before, you know, even if you think the catastrophic risk, mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, even if you think that there's a, um, you know, uh, a 50, 50 chance that there'll be an invasion of Taiwan by China within 15 years, uh, that would be enough to basically change the stock from a buy to a sell for most uh, investors looking at sort of their opportunity costs and stuff, unless the price was very different because the percentage chance per year then is quite high. Um, you know, and uh, that's just the reality of how, what the risk is. And obviously tensions between uh, the United States and China are high, especially um, and, and a lot worse than they were before. And we talked about that with the... Um, there's been a, it's probably a reaction to changes in the, um, um, not so much what they were asking about with Munger about actual tension between the United States and China, but changes in the priorities of the Chinese government, right? So there may be greater priorities on security um, and lower priorities on economic um growth and stuff. And so that's the trade-off in any invasion of Taiwan is that if you're focused on um, improving your position globally, your prestige, nationalism, all of those things, it, it's a more attractive gamble to make if you're willing to um, take big risks on the, the economic side because that's where you're going to suffer uh, in exchange for gains on the other side. So, um, yeah. So if, if a Chinese government is more interested in certain geopolitical considerations that are not economic, then it greatly increases the chance that they would do something like that. Um, what would stop them from doing it is basically understanding how high the risks are economically. Yeah. Well, that was uh, interesting to hear him talk about that. I think that was my biggest takeaway. We've talked off podcast about this, how, how good he is, where he doesn't care if people know that he purchases a company or buys a stock or whatever. And if he, decides oh wow this is a little bit different than i thought it was or he changes his mind on something he's so quick just to get out and dump it and move on to the next thing 
some people yeah. would probably sit and wait, be like, oh, let's see what happens and kind of convince themselves or be in denial about it or whatever. And, you know, perhaps he's even in denial about it. But the fact that he's uncomfortable with it, that's his view of the situation. He bought it and he dumped it, you know, I think just shows how skillful he is. Because I think the general, the question that somebody asked him was basically, hey, not much changed uh, with the situation well, between the time that you bought lot. it and you sold it. So what changed? Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot changed. Um, so it, it's, I think in part, that's what makes him good in, in uh, being in the insurance business, right? So, I mean, I think that it's not unreasonable to think that no one insures these risks, but insuring that kind of risk would have gone up a lot versus what the situation was a little bit earlier. Um, it may not seem that a lot has changed, but sometimes your weighting of the probabilities changes a great deal. And we've talked about that here, especially with like interest rate risk, you know, um, it's always present and we're well aware of it. And you can look at the banks and say, this is how much they would suffer if you're, if rates go up. 200 basis points instantaneously are down, but how realistic is the possibility that that would happen? Um, a few years ago, it's a risk, but you assign a very low probability to that kind of catastrophe hitting a bank. Um, but you start to have that number go up a lot pretty long ago. Uh, when you see, as we talked about in this podcast, you know, what we said, like, you know, a rule of thumb would say you take rates to six to 10% if you need to bring inflation down to 2% like immediately. Now we said that back in say, January, early 2022. Right. Yeah, rule of thumb. But they're not going to do it. But now you're starting to think, well, it's it's shifted dramatically. You've gone from something in which um, you're talking about those, uh, you're you're a couple standard deviations out in terms of the kinds of events that you're expecting now. So at first, in any given year, you're thinking, okay, there there's a very small range of what's likely, right? But although the frequency is quite low, the severity increases a great deal when this happens. So now you're looking at this is a once in every 50 years type event, you know, and then getting realistic about that. And of course, the one that, you know, I always say is, you know, when people show in a presentation for insurance things, this is, you know, this is what it would be if we had the worst event ever, you know, and I always say like, well, the last time it was the worst event ever it was worse than the worst event before. Otherwise it yeah, wouldn't be sure. the worst event, you know? So there'll always be a new record that you can set in those things. And that's what happened this time. Um, they would say, oh, well, if they raised it the way they did in the seventies, oh, well, they raised it faster this time. Right. So mm -hmm. even if you had planned for rates to rise as fast as that. And um, yeah. And I think that that also relates a lot to the, Russian invasion of Ukraine that was similar to the interest rate issue in that there was a great deal of denial from people. There was sufficient information to understand that we were at high risk of race being having to be raised quickly, even though the fed insisted that, you know, no, we're not going to do that right now. And no one was penciling those things in. People were very slow to put in those, uh, to make assumptions about rate increases. If you look at analysts and stuff, um, and people were very unrealistic about the risk that Russia was going to invade Ukraine um, because it was almost certain from the evidence that was available. And yet just because it had not happened for such a long time, there was denial about it the same way as with the rate increases. So um, this is nothing as immediate as that, but there are real changes in terms of at least how they're trying. It's certainly if there aren't real changes in the Chinese government's actual views about things there's clearly a change in how they want to be perceived by others so they may be bluffing about those things but they're certainly trying to communicate 
publicly to the United States and stuff, a different posture than it was the case um, in the past. You can see that just with speeches and stuff, the, the change is complete. Anything that they have to understand is for international consumption that people are reading these things has shifted dramatically in terms of how little is said about economic things and how much is said about security things, which is, you know, code mm-hmm. for, for possible expansion for defense against expansion by others, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, it, it's, it's changed a lot. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, it, it, you know, like we've said before, obviously the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine does decrease the chance of a, um, of that kind of thing happening in, in Taiwan, obviously, because no one would have expected the response to be as strong against the, uh, against Russia as it has been. So the cost just seems higher to anyone thinking about, um, invading a neighbor. And he talked about how comfortable he is or more comfortable he is investing in Japan. And, yeah. um, he was, uh, he did go to, uh, Japan. We, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but I know we definitely watched the interview when he was in Japan and Becky quick flew there for that and, um, met with, I don't know what they say, like five companies, six companies, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, uh, how, yeah, I mean, we were going, looking at the Japanese investor handbook and, uh, saw one of the companies I believe that he owned. Correct. And all of them, uh, look pretty cheap, right? I mean, a lot of companies look cheap in Japan. Actually, I, I was going to look at, mm-hmm. uh, I was going to send to you, I found this presentation that I queued up for later. I haven't looked at it yet, but basically talking about how, um, I don't know if governance is the right word, but how Japan is trying to make their markets a little bit more investor friendly. So they're starting to educate uh, a lot of these public companies in Japan about capital allocation, dividends, buybacks, uh, to make it more investor friendly to the rest of the world. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, a few thoughts. So Japan Company Handbook is the name of what we're looking at. It has yeah. about 2,500 stocks, I think, in the issue we're looking at. It comes out quarterly. You can get it if you have an Amazon Japan account. There are other ways to get it, too, but that's the easiest way to get it. Um, so we're looking at them, the airport in Omaha, yeah. And it organizes. So if you haven't been in Japanese markets or something before, unlike the United States, Japan, like some other Asian markets, uses a numbering system. So you know the number of the company, right? So you know it's like 4878 or something instead of knowing uh, a ticker in terms of letters. What's nice about that is they organize the companies um, on, on the codes, the number codes, by what industries they're in and things like that. And so you move throughout the book very easily that way. And so the trading companies are all organized together. Um, and so you can see everything. that It's very easy to see all the companies that Buffett owns stock in. He's done well in them. Some have gone up more than others, but they were all cheap then, and they're still, compared to big giant companies, pretty cheap in, in Japan now versus other places, things he invests in specifically. Um, not everything in Japan is cheap, but but those are, compared to peers, what he got into. Um, as far as the governance thing, I mean, it's beyond educating. It's, it's uh, really shaming them. It's, you know, trying to say you're doing a bad job if your return on equity is below a certain thing you have to do these things you you know you should be doing them and and changing the the ideas about what is proper behavior and what isn't i think that's really what you're seeing um trying to say like it's now proper behavior to think about 
having higher returns for your shareholders and stuff. And so whether it's government, the exchanges, all that stuff that you're talking about, um, it's basically saying here are the poor performing ones and what they should do to improve it. Um, and yeah, I would say it's a, it's a shift in sort of moral priorities and stuff is the, the idea behind it. Do you think shaming um, is the best way to yes. get what they want out of that? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, in Japan, I don't know if it works yeah, Japan, as well in yeah. the United States, but in Japan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Well, for a few reasons. One, they want everyone to do it. So the educating idea is nice, but educating you only get part of the people to do it, right? Sure. If you educate people, you know, it's like the ESG things we're talking about. You can educate people about ESG all the time, but maybe only a small number who care about that stuff will take it up. If you shame them and make them show their boards all white males and stuff then that can force them to take some steps so that they're not way out of step in the worst of anything. So, you know, in the United States, is usually how they do ESG-type things and stuff is, is shaming. Um, so, I mean, I also think shaming works better on organizations and stuff that way, uh, usually. Um, then, you know, it, it's easier to do than in individuals, right? So, like, it's easier to get an overall group to move along on something if you do that because usually they're not as committed as an individual will be to having a strong opinion on something. You know, most people, most boards are kind of wishy-washy on everything. And if you make it so that it's embarrassing in one way or the other, then they'll, they'll go in that direction that you want them to. So an individual is a little bit harder sometimes because they may actually have strong opinions on something. Right. I don't think you can shame Buffett out of some investment or something. He's very set in his investment things. He held PetroChina even when they, you know, tried that. So, um, but I, as long as they don't have strong opinions, right. That about um, some of those things, and I think that they that that can implement changes, sure. Um, but there's other things that I don't know. Um, there's certain companies that I think it's easier than others. I, I think there's a misconception that more Japanese companies are bad businesses than they are. As long as the business is inherently a pretty good business, it's an industry, uh, product economics, whatever that's good in other countries. I found that the returns on equity and stuff aren't bad. It, the the problems are particularly that they have in places where the business isn't very good and they won't stop investing in it, you know? Um, but if you happen to have a more focused company that's focused on, on categories that are inherently not bad, then it, it doesn't matter as much. Um, the capital allocation is generally poor in Japan, but they don't run the businesses any less efficiently, you know? So, I mean, Google, their capital allocation could be lousy. I don't know. Who knows? Um, you know, a stock exchange, we don't know what their capital allocation is. Moody's, you know, it's just a great business. It, it has, you know, in tremendous margins and stuff. So it looks great because the returns on equity are wonderful and everything. But, um, a business that actually requires making decisions about where to put the money and where not to put the money. No, that's not very good in Japan. Generally, you don't want to do that because that's not their focus. They're not thinking generally about what's the, the cash return on this and how quickly do I get paid back and any of that stuff. Um, they're thinking about whether it expands the business and, and does the right things for their customers and their employees and things like that. Are you hopeful that it will change over time? Well, I mean, I think it will change over time. Yeah. There's a lot of issues, uh, you know, one, there's a lot of things by foreigners trying to get Japan to change, which I think is pointless, you know? So, um, you know, the activism by foreign activists and stuff, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not big on activism, even in countries in which you are the, uh, um, in which is your home country and everything, but certainly going to other places from 
being in another country, you're not going to get, get anything accomplished there. They're not going to listen to you. Right. So I think, you know, throughout much of the two thousands, there was just unrealistic expectations of what things would happen in Japan with Japanese companies and everything. Um, so, but there's a lot of unrealistic assumption, uh, you know, expectations here too. I mean, people hate when they buy into cheap stocks and they don't do the things you want them to do. Mm-hmm. We see that a lot. People get very frustrated in the United States in microcaps that don't do what you want to do. You buy them at a fraction of book and everything. And so it's not surprised me that that happens in Japan. Um, most American investors I've talked to, even if they have very high returns, get fed up investing in Japan and stop doing it. Fed up just because it's status quo going forward. The stock price doesn't re-rate like they would hope is if capital allocation changed it, or if they like did a capital allocation thing like do a reverse capitalization or dividend out money or bring in more Western approaches to it. I mean, wh- why do you think most people just kind of stop investing in Japan from your experience then? Um, Not patient I mean, enough? I, I, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's the same reason they don't invest in value stocks and stay in value stocks, really. Like I said, I, I think they stop investing even in cases in which they get higher returns from Japan than they do from the United States. I think it's more fun to get okay returns in Google than great returns in Japan. Uh, you know, it's just a psychological thing. I don't know. Um, I mean, not for Warren Buffett, not for Walter Schloss, Ben Graham, but for, for most human beings it is, yeah. Interesting. So about Activision, Buffett had said that uh, he doesn't know how it will turn out, uh, but if it doesn't go through, he doesn't think it's any shortcoming uh, by Microsoft or Activision, mm-hmm. and that not everything that should happen does happen. And uh, he said that uh, I think the British government is making a mistake in this case, but that's life in the big city, as Charlie would say. So interesting because we've talked a lot about the merger ARB situations that you would be interested in, and the best ones are the ones where not one of them, yeah. The best ones are ones where you would want to own the stock, or you like the valuation, the price. Where if it doesn't go through, then you would be happy owning uh, the company. So, do you have any thoughts on Activision, Buffett's thoughts towards it, what he'll do with the the stock if it doesn't go through? This was always a questionable deal. On the one hand, you had a very eager um, coupling of the two companies, right? Because Activision has a problem because of um, things related to cultural, sexual harassment, all sorts of things. That and then they they are a um, basically founder led company and stuff, right? So they don't have a professionalized organization that would be easy to leave to someone else and expect the same sort of results as they had before and everything. So basically you've got to find a home for the company if you're throwing out the top people. So because of that, they were in a situation where they're basically for sale, right? Microsoft very much wants to buy a company like Activision. Um, however, that doesn't mean that the deal will get done and it didn't get done or it doesn't look like it's going to get done. There, there can be objections to it and stuff, but um, mainly because people don't like Microsoft, you know, so and not that they love Activision either, but uh, that's, you know, the reason. And, you know, governments can block anything that they want to block in different countries. They have different rules and everything, but you always have to understand that um, you're at the mercy of those things with any of these deals. 
So whatever the rules say that they are, if you know, I mean, we saw a bank uh, merger that uh, was called off, but it's basically because they're just not moving ahead on that. The, the government just kind of isn't working to merge healthy banks together. There's the takeovers that we've seen, but other than those emergency takeover things, it's basically just government policy. We're, we're not, don't want to see banks, you know, merging together, basically. It's not official policy, but, you know, it certainly seems to be at the pace they're working that that's the policy. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of different countries where there's different things that they um, worry about, and it helps to not be disliked, to not be so big that you get noticed. Um, so, obviously, high-profile deals are always riskier, you know. Um, I think any fang type thing that wants to buy something, the deal could be blocked in all sorts of different countries, regardless of what the deal is and all that. And that's the price of, you know, raising your profile that much. That's why some companies try to be very quiet. Um, then you won't draw negative attention to yourself. Um, you know, Activision, the issues are it's a fancy price that Microsoft is paying and it could drop a lot um, if it's not merged with them. Um, so there's just like, it wasn't a sure thing. And then you have some potential for a real, you didn't have much potential for a higher bid. You had realistic potential. It could be blocked and then you didn't, and then you had a, a, a meaningful possibility of, uh, the severity that you would have in the case that it did decline, um, that the deal didn't happen. So, uh, no, I don't like it as much as like spirit or something like we talked about. I don't even like it as much as Albertsons and, and that that's one that everyone will want to block, but, um, you know, it's better in terms of price and stuff. I mean, it's back. Activision's back about where they were originally buying the stock, right? Like, uh, someone at Berkshire, not Buffett was buying it before. Um, cause there was a scandal at the company, which caused the stock to drop and stuff, as I was saying. Um, and someone was buying it before the deal was announced they didn't have any knowledge that the deal was going to be announced. And so that kind of probably gave some comfort to Buffett to buy it. Um, Cause you have the upside if the deal closes and yet you, and he knew Microsoft is very serious about closing the deal as is Activision, I think. Um, but that, you know, you're kind of back in the same place. So they brought up Apple. Okay. Uh, somebody had asked a question because uh, Aswath Damodoran, he had talked about, he, gets pretty uncomfortable if a single position in his portfolio gets to be too big. And he had mentioned that Berkshire is 45.9%. Uh, I'm sorry, that Apple is 45.9% of uh, Buffett's public portfolio. And mm -hmm. uh, it was funny. So the question basically was, is Apple too big for your portfolio or too much of the portfolio? And then Munger jumped in really quickly and said, I think he's out of his mind about uh Oswath. and then buffett talked about how you know he doesn't view uh that position as like oh it's x percentage of the portfolio he thinks about it as just like a collection of every other business that they've purchased um like railroads and utilities these candies and everything like that so they're just all businesses to him um he talked a little bit about it uh apple as a business in general he said, we put a fair amount of money in it, but we haven't got more money than we've gotten railroads. Our railroad is a very good business, but it's not remotely as good as Apple's business. Uh, we don't have anything like Apple, but we're very, very happy to have 5.8%. And we're delighted with every tenth of a percent that goes up. 
from them, you know, buying back their stock. So very happy with their investment in Apple. But more importantly, my takeaway was just how he thinks about the position in general. It's just another investment. And he thinks about this conglomerate entirely, not, oh, we have a portfolio of stocks and it represents, you know, 10% of the portfolio. He thinks about it, um, you know, within the context of the whole business, basically. Yeah, Berkshire owns both businesses, operating businesses and stocks, and it finances them basically with um, insurance and also, you know, has equity and stuff. But so it's kind of three parts to it. There's the businesses, there's the stocks, which also work just like businesses in terms of look through earnings. And you're financing with the insurance. Those are the three sides on which you kind of take risk. And those are the three sides that you can kind of get returns from. Um, Berkshire hopes to kind of be flat on the insurance side in terms of profit or loss from the actual underwriting, and that'll finance the other stuff at about 0%. But when people try to analyze the business or something, that's the right way to do it is those three things is what, what matters. And so imagine it, it, you know, imagine he's running a bank and he has a securities side and a loan side, right? If loans are 20% of the balance sheet and there's um, 10% of the loans are in a single borrower right um that's two percent of the balance sheet so let's you know if loans are a hundred percent then it's a different story so in this case um they have a pretty good mix between the two things i think that the the person who they were talking about who was not the one who asked the question so it's very unfair <laughs> to uh the professor on that one yeah he was probably you know, watching it someone's and then name. his twitter got blown up and stuff like oh all these clippings and stuff like that yeah, yeah. You know, this other guy that I know says this. How about you respond to him, you know? Um, yeah. he, he criticizes you. <laughs> it's like asking so, for myself. Uh, yeah. So, um, but he would probably be worried even at the levels that Berkshire has in terms of concentration, even doing it the way that I just said. Um, even saying, okay, we'll take the business and that part. I mean, we could do that. Uh, I don't... Um, Let's see. He, they own 5.8% of Apple, right? Can you get um, Berkshire's book value? For, I mean, just balance sheet for me. Total assets, $948 billion. Okay, and what's Apple's market cap? Apple, uh, $2.7 trillion. Okay, $2.7 trillion. So what is Berkshire's position in Apple is um, they're about, um, let's see, you have it on. Um, 5.8%. I would say that right? they're at. Let's see. Um, oh, I was going to say, so about 150 billion. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. So what is their position in it? I mean, it's sub 20% of the total company, uh, of their total assets, of their total balance sheet. I don't know if it's 17%, if it's probably more than 15, less than 20. I, I don't have it, you know, in front of me, but it would 116 be 116 billion, 116 billion. Okay. Yeah, so you know, divide 116 billion into 950 billion for a total balance sheet. Now that includes goodwill and stuff and whatever. But if you're asking, like, is Apple more like a 15% position for Berkshire, like compared to other people? Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's complicated is like when we talk about people's portfolios, individual investors, right? And they're like, I have 20% in this stock or whatever. A lot of people have a house that's the same amount as their their uh, stock portfolio. So no, you have ten yeah. percent in that. You have, you know, I mean, when they actually do, and they're like, oh, and then I own these things that aren't actual stocks, and what? It's it's a pretty small number, you know. Mm -hmm. Like that's my oh, mm -hmm. that's my stock portfolio, but I also own these bonds. I own this ETF. I own have this like, you know. Um, 
So, I mean, most people listening to this, look, the thing you're overexposed to is you own a house and you own it on leverage and you're very, very exposed to that. Um, the thing Berkshire is really exposed to is, is on insurance side stuff. Um, Apple's not a super risky stock. Like we said, maybe it's 15% of the balance sheet, you know, um, I don't, I don't know that Apple is 15% of the balance sheet is riskier than an index S and P index in a 60, 40 portfolio, 60% of your, maybe you're taking the same risk. How much, how much company specific risk is there really? So I'm not, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what he actually said because he wasn't the one asking the question and everything. But yeah, the way I would think of it is more like the way Munger thinks of it and stuff is like, okay, if Apple has risk, that's, that's different from the market and stuff, how much of that risk does it have? And what size are we versus what size do people normally have in these things? Like I said, even a very highly diversified, say 60, 40 portfolio or something would have four times more exposure to like general market stuff than Apple is. Um, Apple certainly has specific risks with, it can have specific risks with, uh, mostly product risk. I mean, there's, there's not a lot else. I guess it could have specific risk with some countries it's in and some government risk of regulation and stuff has no credit risk, um, absent like its product not doing well and stuff. So pretty low risk. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I think if Apple was double the size that it is, I don't think it would be the end of the world for Berkshire. The question is whether it's like too expensive and stuff because it got to the size by going up a lot in price. And I think that's a reasonable concern to have that you might have a lot in a stock that isn't very cheap, but if Berkshire could be, have twice as much invested in Apple, but at a lower price, I mean, I'd say go for it. Uh, some golden nuggets from the meeting, uh, little perils of wisdom. You should write your obituary and try to figure out how to live up to it. Uh, that's something you get wiser on as you go along. That was from Buffett. Uh, Buffett also said, don't make any mistakes that take you out of the game or come close to taking you out of the game. You should never have a night when you're worried about investing. Um, that's good. That was a, a good quote to holding cash as well, I believe. Uh, talked about Tom Murphy and his, uh, you know, you could always tell someone to go to hell tomorrow quote, praised by name, criticized by category. Uh, he also mentioned that in 50 years of friendship and business, he never saw Murphy do anything unkind. Um, Buffett said, you need to know, this was an interesting one for me. You need to know how people can manipulate other people. And then you need to resist the temptation to do it yourself. Basically, learn how to manipulate yes, others, yeah. but don't do it. But learn it for your Correct. own benefit. Yeah. Yes, that's very clear from some of the Buffett biography things, especially mm -hmm. when he's talking about K. Graham and stuff. That's I was literally going to bring up K. Yeah. Graham. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's true. So, you know, I think those are important. Buffett is very, very good at um, avoiding being manipulated by other people, at saying no to people, at just saying this person is a charlotte and I'm not going to engage with this person at all. And a lot of people aren't as good at that. And then some people who are good at that then, you know, have the problem that they're willing to use those things in manipulating other people, which in the long run is always a bad idea. I mean, if you look into the history of people who commit frauds and do all these things and stuff, probably. Um, you find a lot of more recent friends. You don't find a lot of people who knew them from a long time ago and still, mm -hmm. um, and, and still, uh, think highly of them. Right. 
So with Buffett, you know, you'll have people who he's known for 60 years or whatever, and they say good things about him. Usually if you have, you know, someone like the Theranos founder or whatever, your character witnesses are much more recent people that you found. They're not people from a long time ago because eventually your manipulations of them and stuff will make them uh, just not want to be involved in your life at all and stuff. So they'll have a time where they were enthralled by you and then uh, a time where that, that sort of illusion broke for them. And uh, so usually, you know, people who manipulate people that way have to keep finding new prey to do that. You really can't keep manipulating the same people all your life. Um, so it's not a good long-term strategy. It's kind of like the honesty is the best policy that, you know, but Munger has said and stuff and pointing out that they didn't say honesty is like good and you should do it. Um, morally, they said it's, it's the best policy and it is the best policy in the very long term. although it's usually the worst policy if you're going to do it one time, right? If it would be best to have a perfectly honest reputation and then lie one time because you get away with it. Um, but it, as soon as you do that, you have a bad reputation. And so, you know, the, the right, you know, even though it seems like you get further by manipulating people, you actually won't in the long run. Uh, on the whole kindness thing, Buffett said, I've never known anyone who was basically kind who died without friends. Uh, he says, I've known, I've known plenty of people of money who have died without friends, including their family. So this whole idea of longevity again, staying in the game, being kind to others, uh, the idea of deserved respect, um, you know, just honesty is the right policy, playing the long game, right? Yeah, and for some of those people, it might not have mattered and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it might have mattered a lot. On, on that stuff, I don't know. I don't know if Sumner Redstone cared if, if uh, you know, anyone liked him. Um, but certainly Buffett and Munger cared. Um, so, it's you know, different things are important to different people that way. Any other thoughts or anything, big takeaways from the meeting that come to mind? Well, there were some... Yeah, there were some old stories I thought was very were very interesting. I've been wanting to hear more about some of them, but you know they weren't the most interesting to other people. They told a little bit of a story about Ben Rosner at Associated Cotton Shops, mm -hmm. and they'd been mentioned of that before. But that's a business that did really really well when run by one manager and then immediately fell apart. Um, and as an example of a business that could be really successful, I mean, it wasn't just slightly successful. It had great returns on equity and stuff. Being that just this little retailer, not little in terms of locations, but each location was small and it was not a super easy business, uh, but it was way better than the department store that, that they bought and, um, and did not have success at all when not run by that person. So um, we've talked about uh, Made in America, right? And we've mm -hmm. talked about um, my father's business, you know, so those give you some ideas of one person and how important they can be to the development of some retailer. Um, but it's a tough operations-driven business. And so just like insurance, the problem is that some of these things, like a good underwriter in insurance, but one that doesn't have distribution advantages, you lose the operator and the business falls apart. And that certainly seems to be what they were saying there. You know, they're talking about how he had no education and and all that stuff, but that he was just naturally someone who was who was very successful as operating a retail business, and a really good sense of like um, money sense of you know um, how to make money, how to keep money, and um, very driven. And when you lose that, then you can't. You know, it's so operations based the business that um, it doesn't last 
And so it's something that looked good and posted good results and then had problems. And they had similar things, I think, with insurance things. I always think about those two as having a lot of similarities, insurance and retail that way, in that you can make a lot of money by just being a really good operator, not actually having any um, moat, as they would say. But as long as you can keep that person in there doing it, minding the store there, you know, um, mm. you can get those results. And investors looking at it will think, oh, you know, I'm sure if inv- Associated Kind Shops was public, they would have seen, uh, they would come up with some story about how it must have a moat and great things and whatever. And it's one person, you know, mm-hmm. and when they're gone, mm-hmm. that's it. Um, so you've got your things like Geico and stuff that do have a moat, but you have other things that are just really well run. And when you lose that person, uh, they fall apart. Did anything stand out to you at all about the meeting? Anything that Buffett and Munger said other than telling that story? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they could have, I, I think they were willing to tell other stories from a long time ago. They seemed in a mood to talk about yeah. those kinds of things. Uh, more the so energy than was great, about, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think they were they were definitely in a good um, mood for nostalgia and all of that stuff. Uh, I think they're more geared to talk about that than like politics and stuff. Um, one thing that Buffett did say actually quite a bit, and uh, I will echo here, is um, he sort of expressed some concerns about inflation longer term without saying the word inflation a lot. But basically he said, you know, I have nothing negative to say about the Federal Reserve and whatever, but at the end of the day... You know, um, the Federal Reserve doesn't control how how many liabilities are out there. I mean, it controls what form they're in and stuff. But you know, it's what's the deficit over time. And um, I definitely got the feeling that, and this could relate to the energy things and some others. But people wonder why would he be as bullish on energy and stuff as he is? He may not mind having things that are a little more hedged in terms of protecting him against the risk that he's getting paid in just nominal dollars in investments. Um, you know, he's definitely said, look, Apple will just raise if they, you know, he hasn't said they'll do this, but this is what he means when he says about the pricing power is, you know, um, like, like the Apple raises prices basically if it has to, and the business will still work out because people like it that much that it'll get it's, it'll extract the value. Um, so I think he may be worried about government policy on that stuff. And, and, um, th- that I think is definitely something that came through in what he said. As I was say, that's when Munger talked about, uh, if someone jumps out of a building, eventually you hit the ground, you're going to hit the ground or whatever. Yes. yes. But Buffett said, you know, but, but Buffett said basically, you know, you, yeah, but the thing is we could stop like when, you know kind of like we're not probably not we're going to probably choose to hit the ground but mm-hmm. we could stop it's not a foregone conclusion it just requires some moral courage that way and um yeah i i think that he's more concerned about that than say what exactly is the right rate for the federal reserve to be at and what's going to happen in the near term that way and all of that um he did also talk about how the business has dropped off a huge degree completely from COVID and stuff that that stuff's over mm-hmm. and that there is that you've seen a real slowdown in terms of the froth and everything of that. Um, so he made a big point of that. That wasn't really prompted by anyone. That was just him explaining the quarterly results and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has the meeting um, influenced like going to these meetings, right? So we went this year and last mm-hmm. year has going to the meetings changed the way that you think about anything with Berkshire or has it influenced um, your understanding more deeply in any way? 
Uh, I mean, not really. No, Mm -hmm. I'd say. I mean, I think the thing that impresses, it does a little bit. It impresses me the most is the degree to which Buffett has been able to um, be intellectually honest with himself, which no one else could do. So Mm -hmm. it's a cult, and they all come there to to take his advice on everything and all this and and come up with reasons why, you know, if he reversed himself on Taiwan Semiconductor, it can't really be that he reversed himself on Taiwan Semiconductor or whatever, you know. Um, And, but he just is able to see, um, is able to behave in a way that's fairly similar in terms of at least his investments in in public things and and probably with acquiring entire businesses and stuff, um, behave in a way that would be the same whether or not people are watching. And most people can't do that. It's very dangerous to most people to get a lot of praise and um, to have a lot of people coming to you and saying, oh, what do you think about this and that? Because you will get bad at your job. Um, And being able to apply more criticism to yourself and your decision-making everything than they are. So I think that's really important. And he's done it a bunch. Um, We talked about reversing himself on Taiwan Semiconductor even though people would see that and he knew that, you know, it, it was public information. He reversed himself on Oracle and said, you know, I, I sold it because I realized that I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't understand it and I shouldn't have bought it in the first place. And he did that in like a quarter. Um, he sold out of the bank stocks, like, you know, really impressively that way. Uh, so the airlines really impressively that way. It would have a lot of other people would have just held those airlines forever, and you could say, well, you know, um, maybe it wouldn't be a problem that Berkshire owned them, right? Maybe they get bailouts. Maybe it would go up over time, and and it would have been fine to do all that. But lots of people would have sat on a lot of those things. Almost no one would have sold all the bank things the way he did. Um, and we'll see if that's right or wrong. But it's a willingness to do that even when under public scrutiny to reverse yourself on those things and to act quickly that others, you know, don't have. He's extremely decisive in his investment decision-making in a way that, that others are not. Um, and he's maintained that not just in old age and stuff, but as being a celebrity and anyone else would not be able to do that. So that's the part that's most impressive is how impervious he is to the celebrity stuff, really messing with how he invests. Um, Coca-Cola, I think he would have sold if he hadn't said all those things about it for all those years. So, I mean, it's not 100% perfect, right? Mm -hmm. But he, you know, because he couldn't think ahead of time that, all right, so some of these brands that I'm buying and putting in my annual meeting and stuff are going to go to 70 times earnings or some insane thing or whatever. But other than something like that where he almost said we're going to keep it forever, um, and maybe sometimes his assessments of people, Right, that is something he has to be careful about because I think it is dangerous if he publicly praises people, being able to reverse yourself on that later, because um, he's very willing to pu- praise people publicly, and in some cases that could be uh, could be an issue of getting yourself out of that um, if those things change. But those are the only ones I can think of where he's really gotten stuck with the fact that he's so public that way. I think it's a big danger to make a lot of public statements, to write things, whatever, even for investors that aren't very well known. I think it really harms their performance and their decision making. And he has the worst case of it of anyone and I think handles it much better than most. Um, Do you think he's able to do all that or a huge reason he's able to do all that is just the way he also sets up his life and maybe insulates himself from 
that criticism, right? He's not on obviously social media. He doesn't really even have a cell phone. It sounds like he doesn't go on podcasts once a week where and talk, you know, two hours about stuff that's going on in, in the market and the economy and stuff like that. I mean, for someone like him that doesn't take criticism, um, or doesn't like criticism, I guess they've mm-hmm. written about in the snowball before how he, he's kind of like that. Uh, do you think he's able just to do all these different things just from the way that he set up his life? It's, to me, it all sounds like very intentional, right? He moved back to Omaha. He didn't mm-hmm. like being in New York City and everything that comes with that, perhaps like uh, being around all of the noise in the financial industry and stuff like that. So do you think a lot of how he sets up his life is has contributed positively to being able to do everything that you just spoke about? Yeah, I think that's possible. Sure. I mean, I think the biggest thing, and none of that hurts that, you know, that helps, but I think the biggest thing is it's something innate because um, when we talk about something like the Taiwan Semiconductor, that's someone who's thinking in bets, thinking in terms of uh, insurance and those kinds of ways of thinking that is, um, that is not necessarily predicting an outcome, but in reassessing the odds will make a decision that way. And that's the kind of thing, you know, the snowball or American capitalist or whatever, when they talk about, you know, he's not willing to do a small bet for, you know, if someone gets a hole in one, let's throw in money for it or whatever, because he must clearly think in terms of those odds and stuff and, and be, um, a stickler for that, that he has this belief in, in rationalism that way. In fact, there was a question about, um, if you'd ever let emotion in an investment decision, it was interesting the way that they answered that. Um, they pretty much said that they don't make decisions that involve emotion. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, now they said that they've left people in who had dementia and stuff. And so they've probably been too emotional in terms of, um, how they handled CEOs. Um, but they've avoided making emotional decisions that way, which is very interesting. Um, it's not a hundred percent true exactly. I mean, it depends on what you mean by emotion, uh, if we're talking about certain sentiments that don't involve financial decision-making stuff, they've definitely let it be involved a few times. I mean, there's no logic to leaving Berkshire as a textile mill operating as long as it was, except uh, for moral reasons. Um, and yeah, there's probably an emotional component to why they're keeping the Bank of America one. He's basically said, you know, it'd be uh, he was basically saying it'd be dishonorable to sell the stock, right? Um, I bought in as like a public showing of, I mean, he didn't say this, but this is what he, if you say, if you think about what does Buffett mean that I approached them, he's saying, look, I gave my stamp of approval and stuff to withdraw that after I approached them and they agreed to do this deal would be like not an honorable thing to do. And so Mm -hmm. that's why we're in that stock. So there might be other people who wouldn't do that. I mean, I think Carl Icahn would say I can sell that stock, you know? Um, So I think there's some element of that actually that they don't um, Munger or Buffett don't recognize or don't recognize as being emotional, even though it does have an impact on some of their investments. But if they mean greed and fear, then yeah, they're, they're just not wired that way. Anything else that stood out to you, Jeff, about the meeting, the meeting itself? No. Anything that they said about Berkshire, the operations, the portfolio? Um, no, I, I don't think that there was, um, I mean, I don't know how informative it is about Berkshire. 
um, the annual meeting. I would say there's there's not a lot in it that way. They put out a good 10K and everything. I mean, it doesn't go into deep disclosures, but you're better off reading the letter and the 10K than you are going to the meeting if you wanted to learn about Berkshire. Um, yeah. He was talking about managing smaller sums of money. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I want to uh, talk about that because he and Munger disagreed entirely, and it's the whole basis of our investment operation. Yeah. Uh, Buffett basically said if he was managing smaller sums of money, we've all quoted the quote before, right? That mm-hmm. supposedly he could earn 50% a year if he was investing a million dollars or 10 million or just smaller sums and how it gets much harder when you are s- scaling up with capital, everything that I think everyone listening knows that. But he even said, look, if he were starting over today, um, he would be focusing kind of on a different, you know, pocket of the market, smaller companies, more obscure stuff, more off the beaten path. He probably wouldn't be buying Apple is, uh, I think what he was trying to communicate if he was, uh, managing smaller sums today. And he's very Mm -hmm. optimistic. It sounds like about the future and Munger isn't Munger thinks it's going to be much more challenging going forward for value investors. And how do you think somebody asked, like, how do you deal with that or whatever? And he basically said, you uh, accept the fact that it's going to be harder. <laughs> and that's pretty much it mm-hmm. to be a value investor. Yeah, this is an area in which Munger and Buffett have very different views, right? Munger's views are almost uh, efficient market hypothesis-like in terms of how bad it's gotten with just too many managers trying to do much the same things and that they are eliminating the possibility for any of them to have, you know, alpha or whatever you want to say. Buffett's view is we got too much money. And if we just could stop having all this money, I mean, they in fact said that very plainly when Munger said, well, every decade our returns have gotten worse and stuff. And Buffett said, it's the size of it. That's the problem. It's not that, that uh, we couldn't do in the nineties, what we did in the fifties is that we were so big in the nineties versus the fifties, right? Like that's what he's saying. It's just too much money. I, I wouldn't know what to do in the fifties if I had all this money. Um, it's not that that those were the golden age and this isn't a very good time for investing. So they just have a disagreement on that where Munger sees it as uh, there are all these inefficiencies and stuff that have been um, ruined by the proliferation of money managers and people charging like we do percentages of things and investing and stuff and all trying to do much the same thing. You know, um, that has caused there to be very few uh, opportunities and things. And Buffett feels like it's just a size thing that Berkshire has and that there's always things that you can do if you look hard enough for them. And uh, and as you said, you think I'm more like Munger than Buffett. And so um, that that's probably in part because of things like this topic. I would say you're a combination of both, but I would say your personality and stuff <laughs> is probably much more like Munger than... Munger, yeah. Yeah, I would say so for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I've talked about this. Yeah. I, th- I, I don't, I mean, I, you know, back in whenever he said that quote that he could earn 50% on under a million dollars, you know, let's say it was, I don't know when it was, but let's say it was the late nineties or something. If he said that, uh, I, I would, yeah, I'd say that too. I could have done 50% on less than a million, not for long. You do it twice or something and you're, you know, you're going to start running into, okay, now you're managing quite a bit more than a million and now, and then a little bit. But if, if, you were showing no one what you were doing. You can invest in anything you want to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's true today. Um, it was a lot easier in the 90s even than it is today. 
in, just in terms uh and you know now we're having all this ai stuff and all of that and what was that going to mean it's going to be even worse in terms of the routine um on thinking sort of processing of information uh what was an advantage years ago was buffett flipping through the moody's thing like we were flipping through the japan company handbook uh, finding the filings and reading them. Other people weren't reading the filings that I was reading, you know. Um, now it pulls it for you, puts it in QuickFS, Guru Focus, Morningstar, uh, puts it in screeners, whatever. And so things that don't require human thought uh, are already kind of being done that way. I was talking to you about how there's an error. in We, we own something in which there's a mistake in the thing and uh, i noticed that everyone's pulling the data from the same place it's a share count error which is a pretty bad error but yeah. um the, makes the a big difference basically yeah and it's it's it just thinks that there are more shares out and that there used to be less shares and then like a lot happened never happened so but because this error was put into capital iq or whatever things that they, this everyone else is pulling from in this case you know it's then been worked into every formula of things. So it's incorrectly calculating earnings growth and this and that, and everyone's basing off of it because it's such a simple thing. And, um, I, it, it was actually driving me crazy because I knew it was an error, but I was trying to find where it made the error, you know? So I was reading, like going in detail through past annual reports to find why did it think that there was a lot like, okay, it misinterpreted a stock split or what happened. Um, but I knew it was an error right away because I'd read the the reports and stuff. So um, that is, you know, maybe something like that will happen. Hopefully that will happen. And, and, and people's um, perceptions of the past will be all messed up because it's incorrectly calculating things, um, you know, but absent that you just have a very different situation now than you did before. There, there are people that will buy anything on a quantitative basis. Don't need to know anything about the stock or anything. Um, no matter how small it is, no matter whatever, if it looks good on quick FS or something. Um, and so that, that stuff is the things that are, that are hard compared to the past. It used to be easier to find that. I don't know if we'll have a future where, um, when we talked about, you know, J and J snack foods and village supermarket and, um, because a computer can know that you should buy those things. And that it would need to have a very strong human override of that, of saying that there's some really good reason, which there wasn't in any of those cases, why you should not do that. Because, uh, you know, it, it's not going to just go, oh, I don't really want, it's too much trouble to look at this, it's small, it's whatever. You know, a computer will just look at all 11,000 options and stuff and present it to you. And whether it's a thinking computer thing with AI stuff or it's just a screen that people pull, it's a real problem. And so, um, and it relates to like why I try not to talk about things that we look at and stuff, because the truth is that some things, especially very good ideas are incredibly simple. And if you just say the name of the stock and why, you know, here's a stock, we're buying a lot of it, whatever people can look at it. And in five minutes, understand that it's attractive. Um, something that takes me 20 minutes to explain might be a good stock and, and maybe I can't convince people to buy it and whatever, but honestly, it's probably less attractive than the thing that's really simple to understand. So, you know, and Munger and Buffett understand that because they understand the kinds of things they invested in back then and how strange some of the anomalies were. So, um, 
Do you think that so means I, I, that there yeah. will be alpha to be had in, like, let's say countries like Japan, where maybe perhaps, uh, you know, most market participants don't focus there or, or other countries or just more complicated situations in the United States? Like, do you think that the United States is going to be the only market that gets even more crazy competitive? Or would you expect that globally as well? To a certain extent, globally, um, it depends. Like, you know, uh, we try have tried several times to get things that we didn't get because of just complications for us and whatever. And, and I mean, you've experienced it now that we've had the fun for a while. How have some of those things done? Pretty good. Like we yeah. said, okay, we're not going to take it because it complicates our tax situation. Well, the answer is anytime that that's why you don't buy something, you should yeah, buy it. You should buy it. If yeah, it's I have sure. to, I have to do much more complicated tax things for the partners and stuff. If it's I don't, you know, this is going to be have complications and be held up for a while and whatever. I mean, every time that's been the answer. It, the answer is you should load up on it. That we understand that people aren't doing this because it's complicated, it's messy, whatever. Um, Japan's interesting. Like it, it does have a little bit of that because. Historically, the Japanese investing public, um, and this is true in a bunch of other Asian countries too, but but we'll stick with Japan because it's kind of cheap, um, does not have the same historical background in terms of the intellectual tradition of like value investing and things like that as the United States. It's just not very present there. So the advantage to that is if you go places where American investors don't go as much, value investing is a strategy you can kind of apply there. I mean, this is getting very esoteric, right? But anytime we apply any kind of strategy, it's not going to work at all times or whatever. Like imagine you're playing um, poker or whatever, right? It's going to matter what the strategies of the other people there are too. So some strategies are better than other strategies on average. Uh, though if everyone adopts, if everyone adopts, uh, you know, if you happen to be unlucky enough that everyone adopts a strategy that doesn't work so well for you, everyone else at the table, then even the sort of optimal idea of what you're going to come there with, uh, could be bad. Right. And so if every single person in Japan was an obsessive value investor, it would be really hard for us to come over there and, and add anything with value investing. What works best is when you can bring a strategy that's different um, from what others are doing and it works. Um, and so going to other countries, yeah, right now works better than the United States that way. But also if everyone wants to buy the compounders, then you notice that other things are not so good that way. And you apply that you have to be flexible in terms of what works and what doesn't, um, by just assessing the odds and, and what's going on that way. Um, so I don't think that there's no reason, you know, like academics study this stuff, right? And, you know, they'll think, oh, there's a price-to-book anomaly or there's a whatever, EBD thing. Or, um, if that's your thing that you're going to invest for the next 100 years, I think that's that's dumb. That's not a good idea because it could work. It's, it totally could work and never go away. But there's no, you know, there's, there's no way you can prove that other people wouldn't just adopt that approach, but there are going to be some approaches that work. There's always going to be strategies that you can have that can can um, take advantage of what others are doing. And uh, that's why, like, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I had a lot of success investing. Because um, I think it surprises people that they're like, oh, well, you must have, like, lagged the market when it was going up and you are doing value investing. No. Not really. Then it comes down. It must have some effect on you that the market's crashing. No, not really. But it's because of 
the way that it was all working at that time, money was being sucked out of these reasonable things and into that unreasonable stuff. And so, you know, it's almost like you had the opposite strategy of this dot-com nonsense of buying into things with no revenue and whatever and paying really high prices. You just bought the very real things. But in the mid-2000s, that stopped working because everyone got over the dot-com, you know, delusion and started to think it's good to own real businesses that have real assets and real earnings and whatever. And it'll keep changing all the time what what people overvalue and what they don't, you know. So um, it can get harder in some ways. You're always going to have to buy the unpopular stuff that's good, right? You have to be different from the crowd, so it has to be unpopular, whatever you're buying. And then you also have to be right. So unpopular but correct decision is what you have to make. And uh, it used to be easier to do that just mathematically. Um, there's a bunch of things that I did that were very simple, and I don't see them anymore. So someone has taken advantage of them or whatever, but there could be other anomalies I don't see. But, I mean, there's a few things I did that it was almost impossible to lose money. Um, like especially things in the same arbitrage things that we've talked about cash offers for things that you buy a bunch of stuff you get cash for and you repeat it over and over again can you tell that story things in the same about like i just think it's a good uh, example of like how there wasn't a lot yes yeah okay so odd lot uh with sarbanes oxy a lot of companies decided around 2005 or something Uh, i don't remember wait uh 2005 would have been like the last uh yeah so the last 10k thing from a lot of them was around that i mean but after enron but before the financial crisis let's put it there that's the really the time period where all this happened so you're somewhere before the financial crisis but you're sometime after enron and worldcom and all the scandals right so during that time you have a um move to clean up corporate governance in the united states meaning like to stop with all of this um you know uh all the stuff that happened during dot com that we're just talking about that was bad okay so some of these requirements are would be costly not so much for large companies but for small ones right so um that you might have to pay people to be on your board that that actually you know um would be like having salaries for things was what you were possibly going to face that you're going to have to pay um for things that are more substantial sort of audit of whether it's internal controls or whatever things, you know, we're talking about things that could be, it might not sound like a lot, but half a million dollars, right? It could be $500,000 a year. If a company is making a few million dollars and it has large shareholders or, or whatever, um, it's going to say, well, I don't want to do that. You know, like it's peers and stuff are like private, they know private companies and things. And they think of this company like that. And you know, they don't think they're Apple or whatever. So anyway, because of that, these companies decide we want to go private. The problem is, under SEC rules, they needed to get under, um, at that time it would be 300 shareholders of record. Um, and so so that would exclude uh, things held in street name and stuff. Um, and to do that, they basically need to get rid of their very small shareholders. So the easiest way to do that is just do a uh, reverse split where you just say um, like 100 to 1 reverse split works well. So anyone who owns 99 shares or less gets cashed out, right? Because they won't end up with one fractional share. Okay. So because of this, lots of companies did this. And on each deal, you would just make money, basically. I mean, you would buy this stock, and then you would get paid your 99 shares, right? And 
beyond that too, there was nothing wrong with them. I mean, you're taking no risk here because these are, I mean, if anything, the companies are probably being, uh, are probably better on average, the ones that were doing this than anything else. I mean, it shows some responsible corporate governance things and all that responding to this and stuff. So there's no reason to think that you were taking on some weird risk you didn't expect by doing this, you know, as is often the case, like most, most arbitrage things that you do, you're like, okay, but what if credit conditions tighten? What if whatever, you know, this was none of that. Um, and so you could keep doing them. It was like, you know, uh, we, there's some books, uh, what was it? The one, uh, man, a man, for, um, the Ed Thorpe book, right? Uh, man for all markets. What was it? Yeah. Um, he talks about mutual conversions at one part where, you know, going or saying, you know, put money in, um, in banks that are going to convert. And then, uh, with those deposits, it gives you a chance to, to sign on to these things to, to be part of it. And you can make money by doing that because he had a nose for that kind of thing. And that's all that I'm talking about with the, 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 um, odd lot stuff. It was very, very small, right? So if you can imagine, right, 99 shares, let's say these stocks are pretty cheap a lot of the time. So let's say it's $8 on the, right? So you're only going to make whatever that spread is on that, but you're tying up 700 some dollars for a period that's pretty short for, um, a nice return in it. Right. And there's no rule that you can't have all your money that you were going to have in good ideas and keep that in those things and only do this with the stuff that you have on the side and whatever. And it only ties up for a little while. And, you know, so there are things that are obvious that way. Like um, I also mentioned that I was managing money for some people, friends, and um, I said to them, you know, uh, I have this situation. I'd been doing it for a few years for them. I have this situation that's going to have high annualized return you know normally i don't know if that's going to happen or not or whatever so and their response was oh well let's take all the money that we have everywhere else put it in you do this situation and then we can like take that money back afterwards and stuff right and so we did that and they made lots of money on a one-time thing i mean the, the annualized return i said it'll be like 50 percent or better or something it happened faster so it was 100 percent or better but um but what's important about that story is unlike what anyone else would do they, because they knew nothing about investing and stuff, were like, oh, of course you take all your money, put it into this good situation, then take it out and stuff instead of like, oh, what's the portfolio going to be? What's whatever, you know, like you don't put money in when uh, you don't have a great situation that way. And so there's a situation where we knew we wouldn't lose money really. And there was good upside for making a lot of money. Um, and I happened to know that I was like going to be able to get stock for them and stuff, you know, which is not always the case. Um, so because of that, they were able to put it to work, then make the money. And then, then you get, take the money out because now, you know, we don't have anything like that, right. That we don't have a good opportunity. Um, so it goes back to what it was before. So that's when Buffett's saying you make 20, 50% a year, he's talking about things like that, right? That's what that, you know, he did the, um, uh, um, chocolate, one, uh, the cocoa beans, right. Where Graham had was because he worked at Graham Newman, he was involved in an arbitrage thing, which is pretty similar to what kind of thing I was just talking about. It involves a little more thing because you have to hedge out the risk. Right. But it's just manually doing basically the same thing I was saying with like getting the 99 shares and exchanging them for the cash. In this case, getting the beans and exchanging them for the cash, you know, same thing. So in that case, Buffett didn't do the arbitrage that they did. He saw how big an opportunity it was and he stuck with it. And 
you know, that's what I mean with like these, these things that used to exist and perhaps they still do in certain pockets and stuff, but, um, and we do come across things, but obviously because I'm now doing a fund and stuff, we have more stuff where we say, Oh, uh, that's an issue because of size of what we do because of compliance things of what we do because of, uh, complications for, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, so you could, I guess economic theory and stuff would say, well, they, there's not really alpha there, right? That you're getting. It's just that the people are willing to take 15% a year lower returns if they don't have to do tax things. Um, or, you know, so it's just that their the level of pain is so high for them for those things. Um, which might be the case. Cause like I said, I know lots of people who were interested in Japanese things and said, Oh, my brokerage doesn't, let me buy them in Japan. Japan's a pretty easy country to invest in compared to some countries out there. And, you know, the answer is you got to open a brokerage account. Different, you got to switch to a different broker or something. And, uh, you know, the Ed Thorpe thing. I mean, you got to go around the country in person sometimes open up to bank open accounts. up those bank accounts. Yeah, mm-hmm. because they wouldn't all, not all those banks would open them. I mean, banks don't have to take your money. And there's plenty of them that if they're a California bank or something, they're not going to take money from someone from Delaware. I mean, they, that's mm-hmm. not a very good deposit that, of what they do. So, um, yeah, so you go around and do that. And that's what Buffett was like in the fifties and stuff. And I think that's what he means by the 50% thing. But Munger is much more negative on that, that there's been a change. Uh, whereas Buffett says it's size issue, right? That you have too much money to invest. And, um, Munger says it's all of these people all thinking that they, can try to make money, you know, that they're all, there's one pie and they're all trying to eat it. Mm-hmm. What do you, that think? was, uh, that was about being a lawyer the pie eating contest. Oh, well that was, that was a different situation. Yeah. yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, there, there's only so in other words, there's only the profit pool is only what it is. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, so there basically when you're in investing and stuff, if you're going to outperform other people, then it has to come from someone else it has to come from the mistakes of the other people who are in there that way if you have a market that's 20 percent amateurs and 80 percent professionals and let's say the professionals are very successful the amateurs are very unsuccessful the, the everything that they're that they're going to make in profit really beyond the just holding the investments though that 80 percent of professionals has to be taken from the 20 percent of the amateurs that's the only way that it can work and so as you increase the number that they have there they're they're more people feeding on a smaller pool of profits um, the same pool of profits which means less per person um, and I think that is definitely a realistic way to look at it, but you know, markets do sometimes go crazy. We talked to someone where in Omaha was saying, you know, even big stocks, this doesn't just happen in, you know, your overlooked part of the world. Um, even sometimes I find big stocks that are mispriced and stuff and don't really understand why exactly they are or whatever. So I think there's some truth to what both of what they're saying. Um, and I've always kind of agree partially with Buffett because when people ask why to only do overlook stocks, my point is not that there isn't things to do in other stocks, but I wanted to come up with something we could do all the time because Buffett's running in a, a holding company. To some extent, people put in money with us. They expect us to do something. Don't just sit there. Right. And, and Buffett, like in the eighties, right. Uh, he sold everything, but like three stocks. And then he just sat there for a little while. And when I'm talking about me investing personally, 
there's a, like the best year I had. I just sat there, didn't do anything. I bought things the year before and then you just hold them. But um, I'm not saying that all clients and partners and stuff are going to say, you know, you've got to do something and, and whatever, but they're going to wonder what's up with that. I mean, they're paying you a lot of money to sit around and literally make no decision for a year. That that does strike them as a little weird. Um, so I think the idea with overlooked stocks, right, is that there's something to do there more often. The concern with the kind of area that Buffett's investing in, right, the really big stocks, is there was something to do in Apple when he bought it, so that was something, but he needs a Apple-sized idea, and it's rare that they get so mispriced or whatever. Now, maybe he could have bought up a lot of meta if he loved that business or whatever because there was temporary, like, focus on strange things happening at that company, right? But, uh, you know, in general, it's hard. So you get these moments, um, like, I've been investing for about 24 years, and I'd say there's been six good years in those 24 years for value investing. Like, that where you're talking about... Um, whether you want to call naive strategies or whatever, not applying much other than just the ideas of value investing. There'd be six years where you just had an abundance of, you could do any of the stuff that we're talking about. They're just mispricings and you could just buy the kind of way academics like with the quantitative stuff. And it, it, would, it was going to work great. Uh, the other three quarters of the time, I don't think things have been that cheap enough to make that strategy work all that well. Maybe you do a little bit better than some things if you apply some things well, but it's more like what Munger says. So, but I've only been investing for, like I said, like, you know, less than 25 years. And it's certainly true that in previous quarter centuries, it's been a lot more than 75% of the time that there was plenty of Ben Graham type ideas and things to do. So are you more on Buffett's side or Munger's side on this one? No, I'm more on Buffett's side. I mean, and I think a yeah. lot of that is the, the, where we focus. If maybe I would feel differently if we were investing in large cap stocks and stuff like that. But I mean, I love people always ask, how do you find interesting ideas and stuff? Like if you're going to focus on like overlooked stocks or stuff that are over the counter or whatever. And um, yes, we do run screens, but I mean, how many ideas do we come across just kind of brute force, just going A to Z, right? Buffett talks about being a page turner. Um, maybe we're page clickers. Maybe you're a page turner with your Japanese handbook, but mm. uh, going through like the the uh, the A to Z list that you could pull from over the counter markets and stuff. I still find very interesting ideas that are like clearly cheaper than if they were to sell on a uh, uh, like on a private market basis. You know, um, yeah. now there's other complications with that. Is it family controlled? Is there major shareholders? Is there stuff like that? But I haven't lost my faith in it at all. I mean, how many? And this is something that you and I have talked about off podcast where we've come across different ideas. We've done the research we've visited. We were very comfortable with it. And perhaps maybe it just didn't meet uh, the hurdle required either from a return perspective or confidence perspective of feeling mm -hmm. comfortable with it. Uh, that's required if you're looking to make, you know, five bets in a portfolio and we didn't invest for one reason. And then, you know, you see it get acquired for two or 300% above, you know, the market price or whatever. And it, psychologically, that's hard to deal with because you're like, yeah, we visited the place, we saw it, we understood it, we just passed mm -hmm. because maybe the hurdle was different or, or whatever, or you had other ideas that you liked more. So no, I'm much more in Buffett's camp. I do 
believe wholeheartedly that size does uh, affect it. I think actually there are obviously large cap stocks that get very cheap, but you don't see, you know, when you talk about J&J snack foods or Activision or FICO, I mean, what were the multiples you paid for that? Less than 10, less than 15, certainly. You just don't see that happen ever anymore. It seems like. Um, yeah, you're talking so, 10 times or less tougher. and yeah. no debt. Yeah. And you don't see that in large caps. For endless years. Not usually, right? It, except like what we said, like if there's suddenly Meta. some weird obsession about Meta. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and maybe we've seen an airline or movie a bank theaters. sometimes when people are worried about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And by the way, movie theaters, no major investor that I know of even owns them. Because think about it, the put aside AMC, which is a meme stock, like the biggest one, the market cap's a few billion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they can be 15% or something uh, of the the overall market for, um, you know, maybe 10, 15%, whatever, of the overall box office. And that's small compared to what these people need to be in. They actually can't even be in some industries. Um, you know, if we excluded 50 banks... Probably if you went on like Dataroma or whatever and looked for or Google Focus or, you know, whatever, the famous investors, right? 50 banks would probably be most all the banks that they're in. You could basically find, I would say, the 50 biggest market cap banks. There's probably 500 listed, I mean, 500 traded ones, maybe 400 some listed, but probably 500 at least banks that are uh, publicly traded in the United States. So 90% of them they can't buy. Right or or they don't buy or they won't buy or whatever and they crowd into the other part of it. So there, there's absolutely a big part of it is that. But the other thing is like with us, that I think becomes more and more obvious with what we do, is the importance of the punch card thing because there are inefficiencies that happen and uh, it's you start to appreciate what Buffett has had to do over his career with that. Because they aren't, they don't continually recur, right? Like there'll be cycles where there's cheap stocks overall, cheap indexes or whatever. But if you have a chance to buy Geico when it's um, on the verge of going out of business, you get that chance once. Um, You know, Geico sold for a ridiculous price to Graham Newman and Geico sold for a ridiculous price to the biggest part of what Buffett bought. He bought it again later. So that's kind of fascinating, right? Because Graham's investors, if they kept it and stuff, made a fortune on that. Buffett made a fortune on that. But like in between, it didn't sell at a ridiculous price. It it it, um, it did really well because it was a growth stock and you could have held it and whatever, but they pounced at particular times. And the problem is when you buy 2% of your portfolio into a highly inefficient situation instead of 20%. There's no point of the round lots thing that I was saying if you had a portfolio that was $20 million because you would put 1% in all the things you were doing together. So it it would accomplish nothing. But if you were some 20-something-year-old at that time and you had just saved a little bit of money and stuff, I mean, that's a great way to to juice your returns in the early years and then compound from there on that. It makes a huge difference um, that if your early years you made 50% a year or something, right? I mean, that, that, that helps the compounding in later years. It doesn't matter the order in which you get your compound returns. They're just as valuable early on as, as later that way. So um, it's, you know, the size of the opportunities. And so Buffett's always had this weird thing where even though he's a giant company now running Berkshire he's always had to uh, to get really good returns he's always had to absorb 
an abnormal amount of the stock for someone in his position. He's always yeah. done that. He's still doing it now with Apple. Apple's like the most popular stock out there. And who, what active investor owns almost 6% of the company? They mm -hmm. wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. And he still has to do it with even the most giant company out there. But when he was in little stocks, he had to buy lots of them. When he's in big stocks, he has to buy lots of them, which gives you an idea that maybe there's inefficiencies in really big stocks too. But if they're 500 S&P companies, there's probably not many of them at one time that mm -hmm. are really, um, that, that are, are mispriced at the same time. And so that's probably why we're misunderstanding like Occidental. It's not that he wants to take it over. It's just that Occidental isn't enough to, to satisfy him in terms of how much he wants to be, how much capital he wants to put in oil. He does, he's just too much relative to what yeah. the opportunity that he's seeing, you know? And we all think in terms of like, oh, well, that must mean he wants to take it over if you buy a big chunk of a company. But sometimes you just, you know, he doesn't see a lot of other things to do. So, you know, it's a focus thing. Yeah. And you don't see, I mean, I don't come across, you know, Sanborn map type situations. I mean, where it's like, oh, I'm making numbers up. The stock price is 10 and it's got $50 or $40 in a stock portfolio on the balance sheet in cash or whatever, or that could be converted to cash. You don't see those, but I mean, we've seen situations mm. in smaller companies where it's like, oh, it's a, a market cap of, let's say 15 million and they have a stock and bond portfolio of 12 or, or 13 million or close to it. So you still actually come yeah. across those situations. At 10 years ago, I, I did two that are that situation. One giant one, one small one. So it does happen that stocks trade yeah. below their, their investments per share and stuff. Um, but, but I'm saying it doesn't happen as much as Buffett 1.0 is what I'm saying, but I'm trying to say it still does yeah. happen. <laughs> you don't get that in large caps, but in the pink sheets and being a page turner, all this stuff that quite frankly doesn't come up on screens or if you type in a ticker on quick fs you'll see like uh the the last fiscal years would be like 2014 2015 2016 i mean the data is just completely not updated or not correct that's good because yeah. that's like yeah. oh wow now i actually have to you know th there's a chance for price discovery here because this isn't coming up for quants and and uh you know on screens and stuff like that or at least as much as these other companies are so there's still situations out there like that. Uh, I think the brute force method is the best way to find them. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm much more in the Buffett camp. Now for large caps, I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be much harder. I mean, it's interesting and we've talked about this, right? Like correlation, how much mm. uh, of what you're doing is, is basically the market and stuff. Your long-term returns that we took when we launched the fund uh, if memory serves right, it was like 25% correlated to the S&P. It was like 0 0.26, yeah. 0 0.27, something like that. Since launching the fund... The private, yeah, by my... Yeah, exactly. Results from... Uh, which is not the fund, but what I did myself before then was that kind of correlation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And since launching the fund, it's like 0 0.6, right? And we've talked privately mm -hmm. about this. We're like, well, <laughs> I mean, we did go through COVID where basically everything was correlated, everything went down and stuff like that. So it's actually been yeah. a little bit more than double what it has always been. But the thing that I think is interesting is it's different than the market. Um, investors are paying us and I know they say there's no style points in investing and that's true to an extent, right? But I just think uh, you want to do something different than the market than what investors could just buy the S&P 500 ETF and get themselves. 
Um, and I think there are still ways to do that. I don't want this all to sound like a huge focus compounding pitch, right? I'm basically roundabout trying to say that I still think that those opportunities exist because we see them every single day, right? We're taking advantage of a situation that is pretty interesting. And there's a still constraints, right? We've that funds have. We've talked about buying a, a, yeah. a an LP and we, we're like, well, this is going to be, we couldn't do it, right? And then there's other even size constraints, things that we can't do. So those, those mm-hmm. ideas or those unique situations, they still happen in 2023. So, yeah. Oh no, those, those unique things do still happen. And, and sometimes added regulations and added whatever things cause more of them. Actually, since we started the fund, it's become harder for people in interactive brokers to buy certain stocks. Yeah. I've seen the effect of that in, in the UK. We've talked about that. I mean, I would love to be, I'm not allowed. This is a self-imposed thing, but I'm not allowed to invest my own money outside of the fund. I just didn't, you know, the fund is the only thing where I'm picking securities for and the manager accounts, but I, I have to invest alongside the way I'm managing money professionally, basically. Right. So I don't own index funds, stocks, bonds, but there's stuff that I find that we don't buy that I would love to open up an account and buy it because I know that um, like the manager accounts, right? If interactive brokers won't do it, I'm like, Oh, that's why this looks like this. Yeah. Because probably interactive brokers is like an incredible amount of the American investors, individuals who would be spotting this kind of thing. And they're just saying, okay, fine. Interactive brokers, you're my broker. So if you won't do this, I'll just move on and find something else. But it's something that's a lot more attractive. Right. And it's very small when you have those things, right? Because you don't want to have that problem with other stuff. But it is interesting that that wasn't a problem before. It's because of added rules and stuff and added care that they're taking on that. And dark stocks in the U.S., you've had the same thing where it's split. You had dark stocks either go and start reporting things, and then there's an active market for them, or you've had this expert market thing. And for some of the people listening to this, the expert market thing means they're like, the stock doesn't exist. It's just vanished, you know? There's still a market for it. I mean, that people who are running funds and stuff can see this, but that the average individual now, that stock is no longer an option to invest in. Um, And it was the same company that it was before, but that was added regulation that caused that issue. Um, And when we were talking, you know, uh, about, I mean, what we were trying to do before that we were talking about, um, that's added regulation too. I mean, we're we're not talking about the we're not saying what that situation was, but actually a decade ago, those securities would have, we could have bought them and we can't because it's become easier to expedite certain things by complying with certain regulations that, that make a less active market for some things. And so that is an issue in some cases, uh, or that it's uh, happens in other countries, right? So there's things where we'd have to go over and buy things in another country or something, because the reason why they're not in the United States is, higher regulation here than in you know other places so it can happen just like all that stuff was just caused by the sarbanes-oxley stuff i was saying you know that caused the uh the the, that weird little um thing where you could go around buying 99 shares getting your cash and moving on from one deal to the next um sometimes those same things could happen now with dark things or added regulations of things or whatever you know who knows if like Chinese stocks weren't able to be listed in the United States. Would some would would the price for them be different just because of that? Even though they're the exact same company or whatever, um, you know. So I mean, it, it can still happen. And and also to be fair, Buffett and Munger don't really look in other countries, right? So like if they were young, probably Buffett would have to now starting over. I would imagine think more seriously about the, 
worldwide stuff with computers and all that, that he would have access to the internet. He could apply more of that kind of idea to other countries. And, uh, you know, um, back in the fifties, you couldn't do that. Um, for the most part. And you would have no way of getting information on these things. And many markets weren't open in any way, even to professionals to do that. So you could maybe apply some of the ideas that he used back then that have become kind of harder to find any of those inefficiencies in the U S in other countries. And we, you know, we know some people who do that, who probably focus on countries that they wouldn't focus on. I bet if, if they were investing in the fifties, cause it'd be easier to invest in the U S and so they're kind of pushed over to trying to find that stuff in other countries, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Buffett and Munger don't know anything about obviously other countries and really small size anymore. Cause they've been managing so much for so long that they wouldn't, you know, think about any small inefficiencies. They have to think only about these giant things, mm-hmm. you know, like the T-bill thing that they did. Yeah. So that's the only kind of things they can really take advantage of. It has to be something big. Mm. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. You can expect to also listen to us next week. Took a little month detour, but here we are and back to producing content. Uh, Be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff and to learn more about our money management services, uh, but truly the best place uh, to get everything that we put out into the investing universe is to follow me on Twitter, which is at Focused Compound. I thank everybody so much for all the support. Leave us a rating and review, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.